Hello everybody and welcome to Kickback, your global anti-corruption podcast. Enjoy today's episode of this joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. You can subscribe to the show via Spotify, SoundCloud or iTunes. If you like what we do, leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts. If you want to get in touch with the show, follow us on Facebook or send an email to info at icrnetwork.org. Welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson, and my guest today is Sergei Guriev, the chief economist of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Sergei, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me, Matthew. Let me start out by asking you a little bit about your background. You had a background as an academic economist, and now, of course, you're working for the EBRD. And in both of those positions, at least some of your work has dealt with corruption and anti-corruption. Tell me a little bit about your path. That's exactly right. I uh, joined New Economic School as an assistant professor about 20 years ago, and first I worked in the New Economic School, then I got to run New Economic School, uh, except for a couple of one-year spells at MIT and Princeton as a visitor. I then left Russia and uh, I moved to Paris where I worked at Sciences Po and then I joined European Bank for Reconstruction Development as chief economist. And as an academic economist, I was actually interested in corruption. And the first academic paper I wrote was published in 2004 in Journal of Development Economics called Corruption and Red Tape. And uh, later on, I worked on other aspects related to corruption and governance. And uh, this uh, issues always interested me and living in Russia, one of kind of more corrupt countries, one of the countries which are more corrupt than countries with a similar level of development and definitely more corrupt than countries with similar level of human capital. I was, was always interested why and how quality of governance can be so much lagging behind other uh, aspects of development in Russia. And I guess one paper that is cited, still cited reasonably well, is our paper on Russian oligarchs, where we collected data on who owns Russia, basically, around 2002-2003, as a part of the World Bank project. This paper came out in the, in the Journal of Economic Perspectives in 2005, where we showed that oligarchs own something like 40% uh, of Russian industry. By oligarchs, we meant 20 largest business groups, and we showed that they were more productive than other private owners or definitely than the state. We showed uh, the structure of their uh, ownership of their equity stakes. We told the story of how they acquired those stakes. So that is a paper which uh, I think still resonates uh, well, both in Russia, but also in a country like Ukraine, where we are recording this podcast. So you said a moment ago that one of the things you were interested in in your study, in your academic study of Russia, was why governance, including, though not limited to, anti-corruption, seem to be lagging so far behind other aspects of development. Can you say a little bit more, based not only on your own work, but the academic literature more generally about why that's true? Why does Russia seem to lag behind on these indicators? Why is corruption so pervasive in that country or other countries in the region? This is a great question, and indeed it's not only Russia, but other countries in uh, in this region are other BRD countries, uh, more or less. Uh, 
if you compare them in terms of quality of governance, in terms of corruption, for example, if you go back to worldwide governance indicators uh, by Ray and Kaufman, you see that countries in our region, including Russia, are more corrupt than countries with comparable income level. In, another feature in our region is that most post-communist countries also have higher quality and quantity of human capital relative to countries at a similar level of development. So why is that is a great question. A lot of people would say that there was no corruption under communism, which is not true. It's not just measured in the same way and we don't really have good measures of corruption before transition to market economy. But uh, what is true is many of these countries didn't have exposure to democracy, didn't have democratic institutions. Uh, didn't have free press for decades. And while some of these countries rejoining European Union had a very quick transition to modern political institutions, other countries east of European Union uh, still lag in terms of democracy, political accountability, competition at the voting booth and in general uh, political institutions. And this is probably the most important reason why our countries lag in terms of anti-corruption. So related to that, at the time of transition, there seemed to be some optimism that democracy and marketization would substantially improve governance and would reduce corruption. The idea being that if you can throw the rascals out at the ballot box, then this will constrain corruption. And in the economic sector, if you move from a state-dominated system to one where there is more competition, then you would squeeze out opportunities for corruption. And while that optimism may have been borne out in a handful of countries, it seems like in many of the countries in this region, that optimistic story didn't really play out the way people had hoped. Do you have thoughts on why that was? Why is it that democratization and marketization don't seem to have promoted integrity and good government and a reduction in corruption the way some people, I think, expected they would at the time of transition? That's a great question. And I think just 30 years ago, Academic economists didn't have that knowledge that we have now, and um, most of that is related um, related to the research and quality of institutions. The institutional economics and new institutional economics developed, but it really got a boost, actually because of experience of transition, that we need to think about quality of institutions, we need to think about evolution of institutions, why some institutions go in the right direction, in the wrong direction. and. Uh, one of the things, for example, which uh, we observed within the academic economic profession is this growth of institutional economics. And uh, uh, you can actually trace uh, the development of the society, which is called Society of Institutional and Organizational Economics, which used to be called International Society for New Institutional Economics, back to mid-90s, exactly because that experience delivered a wake-up call, the quality of institution institutions matter. Now, why uh, some countries didn't manage to improve institutions. Well, it's all about opportunities for rent-seeking. When you have the old system collapsing and uh, the new system is just building its way, you can, if you're rich, you can uh, try to shape those institutions in the way you want. And this is exactly the concept of oligarchy. We at the BRD, of course, are not against big business. Uh, we think that if you have a large company which is competitive in global market, there is nothing wrong with that. What is wrong is the concept of oligarchy, when big business doesn't play by the rules, but shapes the rules, chooses the rules to play by. 
And this is the phenomenon which emerges in countries where institutions are not strong. And this is exactly what happened in early 1990s in some transition countries. The old system collapses, you have transition to market, you have great opportunities for rent seeking. Some large businesses emerge right away and then they're so powerful that they capture the state, if you like. And uh, uh, this is related to this concept that uh, we discussed in this paper about oligarchs, but in some other related papers as well, institutional economies of scale. When we talk about economies of scale, we usually mean that the bigger you are, the more productive you are. But in countries where institutions are not strong, you may end up with a situation, the bigger you are, the easier for you is to capture the courts, to capture the politicians, to capture the media. And then we, you use this political influence to protect your abnormal profits in real business. And then you generate those abnormal profits in the real business. Being a, uh, somebody who holds uh, excessive market power, you generate excessive profits to reinvest them to subsidize media, politicians, and courts. And this is the nature of oligarchic, chronic capitalism regime that emerged in some of our countries. With the benefit of 2020 hindsight, is there anything that the countries going through transition could have done, or that those external parties who were involved in attempting to influence what was happening could have done to prevent or at least curtail the phenomenon that you just described? If people knew then what we know now from the subsequent 30 years of research by you and others, is there anything that, that could have happened in that moment, or was it not really a problem that was susceptible to any kind of preventative interventions? Well, that depends uh, how generous you are in terms of uh, thinking about counterfactuals. Could you have gotten different people in offices? Could you have gotten more money coming from the West? Could you have defaulted on the foreign debt? So, for example, Poland did not assume the whole external debt it inherited from Soviet times. And probably it shouldn't have because it was a different country, different government. Russia did assume foreign debt and uh, it negotiated some restructuring, but overall that probably was uh, too much of a burden on a country which was suffering from low oil prices and major disorganization. Another issue is, of course, focus on governance and focus on inclusion. So uh, this is something that people didn't really have time to think about, didn't uh, know how to think about. But when you do those reforms, you know that people who, most, who are most vulnerable are people, people who are left behind, are people who have lowest, lowest opportunities for succeeding in the market economy. And so you need to think how to help those people, how to help people who have no marketable skills, how to help them integrate in the emerging market economy. And so when we look back today, we see that, well, some Russians or Ukrainians or some, some Poles, well, actually all Poles, but in, in the, every country you have top 20% or 40% who really benefited from transition, while the rest has not. And so the focus on inclusion is important. Another focus should have been on, indeed, on governance. So you had to make sure that the government, the reformers themselves, were not corrupt and were acting in the interest of the economy, society, not in their own interest. And unfortunately, some of uh, reformers were, uh, were not doing what we now would perceive as normal integrity standards. They, would, they were not behaving in the right way, and so they didn't clean up their own act, and so that undermined the trust in market reforms, credibility in market reforms. And if you think about the mistakes of the West, the West should have been more generous to provide funds, sort of a Marshall Plan for transition countries, to help them overcome this period of extreme turbulence and disorganization. 
to help support those left behind. And uh, that has been done, as I mentioned, in, to some extent to, with regard to Poland and has not really been done with regard to countries further east where indeed they assumed foreign debt in full and they really didn't have funds to support those who were left behind. So I think that's a natural way to transition to your current role as the chief economist of the EBRD, where of course we're in a very different historical moment. We're no longer in the immediate post-transition period, but your current position, your organization, one would hope would allow you and your colleagues to try to put into practice some of the lessons that have been learned from this body of research that was done in response to the problems of transition. Can you talk a little bit, just to set things up, about what exactly the EBRD and related institutions do with respect to the corruption, anti-corruption problems? My understanding is that for most multilateral development banks, historically, corruption was considered more of a political issue and therefore very sensitive and maybe even outside of the scope of uh, what these institutions did. And that's changed a lot in the last 20 or so years. So can you talk a little bit about how corruption and anti-corruption factor into the kind of work the EBRD does? Matthew, it's a great question. And indeed, you're right in terms of uh, how multilateral institutions work. Indeed, multilateral institutions have their shareholders, governments, and some of those governments are governments which are relatively more corrupt, and they don't want to be criticized for this. And for example, uh, not everybody likes the work that I mentioned today about worldwide governance indicators. And uh, politically, it's, it's not easy for a multilateral institution actually to evaluate quality of governance and anti-corruption policies. So uh, we at the BRD indeed especially me as a chief economist myself, I, this is my job to think about these issues and bring the body of research into operations of the bank. And uh, what we've done in the last three years in the bank, during my tenure in the bank, we brought in issues like inclusion that I mentioned, but also, also issues like governance directly into the mandate of the bank. So literally, uh, the way we define transition, the way we define the destination point, sustainable market economy, is linked to what we call transition concept. What a sustainable market economy is, what a success should be defined, how the success should be defined. And now it's a six-dimensional uh, uh, concept, uh, which has uh, six dimensions of success that we call transition qualities, and one of them is actually governance. Now, uh, how do we measure and uh, operationalize governance? We measure governance both at, well, at national, subnational, corporate level. So we work with our clients at subnational, national, and uh, corporate level to improve quality of institutions, to promote integrity, to reduce corruption at all these levels. And one of the things I would like to mention, since we are in Ukraine and we're recording this podcast after a conference, in this conference, my colleagues from other parts of the bank organized a number of sessions showing how we work through, for example, procurement reform by helping the Ukrainian government to take procurement online and create a transparent system, which is called Prazora, which is a Ukrainian word Prazora, which means transparent. Create a transparent and accountable procurement system and definitely reduced corruption in that area. We also discussed how this system can be used for selling government assets and non-performing loans and non-performing assets of, of state banks, which is also, of course, about reducing corruption. Now, another session that we organized was showcasing our work on business ombudsman. This is something that we do in many countries, but in Ukraine, it's been 
especially successful, where we set up an office which uh, accepts complaints from private sector, from businesses, investigates those complaints and, and help uh, uh, better parts of the government to resolve those issues. Another issue which is uh, more at a large foreign investors level, uh, this is something that we do in many countries as well, is where we have a foreign investors council and in, in Ukraine there is also an investors council where leaders of uh, foreign businesses investing in the country meet every year and at a lower level every quarter with the government and uh, once a year with the prime minister or president depending on the country where they also discuss issues related to governance and corruption and uh, then through our support and follow-up we make sure that these issues get get addressed and loopholes regulations that promote unethical and corrupt behavior get closed. So the kinds of projects you just described sound like they're areas where the EBRD is providing support to governments in putting into place reforms that are designed to do things like increase transparency and reduce corruption through other mechanisms as well. My understanding is that for many multilateral development banks, including the World Bank, that's one important aspect of the way they integrate anti-corruption and integrity into their programming. Another one that maybe is a bit more controversial has to do with explicit or implicit conditionalities. That is the idea that there are certain other projects, maybe with respect to supporting infrastructure development or what have you, where the the lender makes clear that in order for this support to continue, the government needs to adhere to certain standards of integrity with respect to that project or more generally. And if those standards aren't being met, then support for those projects could be withdrawn or withheld. Is that also an aspect of the EBRD's work, as it is, for example, the World Bank, or is that not something that, that your organization gets into? Well, this is uh, this is a prerequisite of our work. So this is not, uh, I, I've not talked about this because uh, I was mostly talking about transition impact, how to change the situation in the country. If you talk about our own projects, projects we invest in, this is a precondition for everything we do. We have very strict uh, standards and we just don't do projects where we see that there are corruption risk, reputational risk, compliance risk involved. And so this is, this is of course, something that uh, all multilateral institutions try to do and uh, declare to do. And overall, I see that they're delivering on this. There are mistakes, of course. Nobody's perfect. We may miss some potential risks, but uh, we do declare high standards and we do our best to adhere to these standards. Does that make it difficult to operate in any of the countries where you would otherwise be like to be supporting development projects because they're high-risk environments and it's very difficult to guarantee that your projects won't raise significant corruption risks? Is there is there sometimes a trade-off between the desire to support development through investments in, say, infrastructure and the desire to avoid any kind of corruption or other integrity problems with respect to EBRD projects? Absolutely. So there are countries where we can do very little business exactly because uh, all potential business partners are in directly or indirectly related to the ruling politicians, basically. And in some of those countries, we just can't do much business. There are some countries, many of our countries are reasonably small, and there are some countries where all interest in development projects are related to politically exposed persons and we cannot do much business. And this is a big, big challenge for us because we would like, as you rightly say, contribute to development. But we strongly believe in 
anti-corruption standards. And the reason for that is exactly what we discussed in the beginning of the conversation. If you contribute to development in an unfair way, you build a system which is not deemed fair and meritocratic by the majority. And those reforms will be rejected eventually. And so it is easier to move slowly, but in the correct way, sticking to standards. In the long run, this approach uh, will pay off better than the approach when you try to move fast, breaking your own rules and undermining the legitimacy, political sustainability of the process. So that, that's interesting, and it seems to be, I was about to say an implicit rejection, maybe an explicit rejection of a school of thought with which I'm sure you're familiar, which claims that institutional quality tends to follow economic improvement rather than to be the principal cause. So there is a view that says, really what you need to do is to promote development, to build infrastructure, to invest in education, to invest in health, to do all of these things. And then as standards of living rise, eventually the population will start to demand good governance. And if organizations like the EBRD and the World Bank want to promote good governance and integrity, really what they should be doing is not be so reluctant to invest in projects that might raise the standard of living. The alternative view, which I take it is captured by what you just mm -hmm. said a moment ago, is that that's, that's not right, and that attempting to promote economic growth without first, without first putting good institutions in place is unlikely to succeed. Do you think that's a fair characterization of the debate? I think, the I think, I think it's a bit of a black and white view, and indeed empirically, some people would say we have rejected the first view, the modernization hypothesis. I, I'm not, I'm not as, as convinced. I think the debate is still continuing whether, for example, investment in human capital helps improving institutions or it is investment of institutions that is critical to develop human capital and infrastructure. So I think the debate is still continuing. We don't have enough empirical data to uh, have a global statement that institutions are the principal cause or the development is the principal cause to, cause of institutions it's it's a uh, it's very hard to say whether it's black or white but we definitely can say that if you work in a corrupt and an unfair way that at some point it will backfire and uh, it will backfire and your efforts may actually be even counterproductive in the sense that your investments uh, will not promote transition to democratic and market-based economy uh, while you will build a chronic capitalism. So one of the fascinating uh, developments that we've observed in our countries, in some of our countries, is when reformers fail in an election because they are too corrupt or because they neglected the issues related to inclusion and equality of opportunity for people left behind, they hope to come back in the next election. But sometimes they have populists who, are, uh, who take advantage of reformers' failure. And some of these populists don't deliver and get voted out. That happens as well, especially if democratic institutions are relatively strong. But some of those populists don't deliver and say, we don't want to leave. We will remove political checks and balances. We will restrict political freedoms and political competition. And reformers will not be able to get back and correct their ways and to offer better reforms. Now, it's just unfortunate sometimes uh, the populist, uh, uh, populist challenge is not that they are promising non-sustainable economic developments, uh, trying to correct corruption or inclusion issues, but uh, they also destroy political competition. And in that sense, in that sense uh, those mistakes 
where you neglect standards, where you want to make shortcuts, uh, sometimes they backfire in a much bigger way than people think. Instead of uh, thinking, okay, this time we made a mistake, next time we will come back and do it right. Sometimes you end up with creating a backfire against of reform. And then it's not just about uh, losing four years or five years, but it's about allowing to build a, a regime, which is a chronic capitalist regime, which is actually based on corruption, but it's also a non-democratic regime, which is very well entrenched and very hard to get rid of. So on that subject of, of getting rid of the crony capitalist regime, so it seems like in this context, as in medicine, prevention is better than treatment. If exactly. You, if you can stop the bad phenomenon, the state capture, the crony capitalism from taking hold, then you're much better off. But of course, in many places, in part because, as you said a moment ago, at the moment of transition, we didn't know what we know now. And in many of the countries in this region, the problem is already manifested. In many countries in the region, you already have the kinds of populist regimes you just described that are eroding checks and balances. What, if anything, can be done to try to shift a system that's already mired in crony capitalism, systemic corruption, to one that's healthier? So again, the first best, as the economists would say, would be to prevent it from happening. But if that fails and you have to move from prevention to treatment, what sorts of treatments do you think would be appropriate? And this is probably outside the scope of what the EBRD can do as an institution, but thinking more broadly, what kinds of things can either internal reformers or external actors do to try to dislodge a system of crony capitalism and state capture once it's taken hold? So uh, in a sense, you're asking me how to change regimes in countries which are non-democratic and crony capitalist uh, based, right? And uh, this is indeed not part of my job. So IBRD is not engaged in regime change. So Article 1, we are unique in the sense that Article 1 of our charter does mention the word democracy. Uh, we uh, are supposed to work in countries uh, which uh, are committed to multi-party democracy and pluralism. And uh, yet, it's not our job to promote democracy per se. Our job is to invest. But when we invest, we, of course, adhere to our standards. By that, we actually help healthier parts of those economies to develop and build meritocratic pockets of competition. And uh, we also uh, promote integration. This is yet one of other, all those six qualities, part of our mandate. We integrate markets. We help uh, those economies to be subjected to international competition, bring in international experience, bring crowd in international investors, which are, of course, usually more transparent, more competitive. And in that sense, it's again, not black and white anywhere. And uh, in some countries, which are not perfect democracies, we still are able to work and promote uh, governance, improve institutions as we see. I was actually asking the question not in your capacity as a representative of the EBRD, which, as you just said correctly, can't get involved in regime change. Mm -hmm. I was asking more. Let me put the question a slightly different way. Can you think of any encouraging examples of countries that did find themselves in this situation where crony capitalism and corruption were pervasive, but managed to get themselves unstuck from that situation? So again, we have many sad examples of countries that fell into that. 
Can you think of some at least modern examples of countries that have been able to pull themselves out of that situation? Well, uh, the iconic example is, of course, Georgia, uh, where the new government, which came to power in 2003, uh, rolled out major anti-corruption reforms, which delivered both uh, tax collection and economic growth and investment infrastructure. And that was a major success. Also, that country did not undermine democratic institution. And the best proof of that was uh, that uh, that government, which delivered uh, very fast income growth, actually lost an election in 2012. And uh, we still believe that uh, Georgia is a country where there is no petty corruption at all. In all kinds of measures, Georgia is a country, one of the top 10 countries in terms of ease of doing business in the World Bank ranking. So there are many success stories you can tell about Georgia. Now, Transparency International believes that in recent years, after 2012, Georgia was involved in a backsliding in terms of top-level corruption. But uh, overall, Georgia still stands out as a cleaner, competitive, open country where those reforms uh, that started in 2003 2004 actually delivered. So that's a slightly different uh, type of question. As we discussed before, you were an academic economist. Now you have this role in the EBRD. Do you still find the academic research literature useful for the work that you do? Do you still draw on scholarly literature and does it in any way inform or influence the way that you and your colleagues at the EBRD approach problems related to anti-corruption and governance? Uh, absolutely. It's it's my job, actually, to be an inter- intermediary between uh, the bankers and the world out there in terms of ac- academic research. And um, IBRD, as a development bank, is and other development banks work the same way, I guess, has people of all kinds of occupations, but all of them are committed to development. And so they look up to me as a person who can tell them what academics out there think. And so... The way we think about this, we have a small research department and uh, part of uh, what we do is to produce research ourselves on our countries, which unfortunately is an under-researched region, as for many, many decades these countries didn't have competitive social science research institutions. But we also, by the virtue of doing research, we engage with researchers outside and can see what's happening in academic literature. And we bring in insights from that and help our bankers to design operations and uh, uh, promote reforms. And this conference uh, where we're recording this podcast at in in the city of Kiev is a good example of that, where where half of the conference was uh, academic research focusing on our countries, but also other countries. And half of the conference was policy sessions describing the experience of other countries, but also of Ukraine, what works, what doesn't work. And this is exactly how we operate. And this is my job, actually, to be a bridge between academic research and the operational work of the bank. Let me continue on that theme. Many of the listeners to our podcast are young up-and-coming academics who are interested in studying corruption, anti-corruption, maybe governance a bit more generally, and in the process of formulating their research agendas and their plans for the next however many years. If you were speaking to a group of young academics generally interested in corruption, anti-corruption, what lines of research, topics or methods or both, would you strongly advise them to pursue based on now what you see in the field would be most useful in 
informing policymakers and others? And what lines of research might you gently suggest maybe are not as fruitful now as they might have been in the past or or ever? What kind of advice would you give to the community of young anti-corruption scholars trying to figure out what topics and projects to work on and how? I think uh, it's a very difficult uh, question because standards have risen so much in academic literature, especially in economics. What you could have published uh, 20 years ago now will not be considered even as a master th- uh, thesis. Uh, the empirical standard, empirical methodological standards have risen. Data are available. So if we talk about uh, corruption, then this availability of new data, including big data available through various uh, digital technology, probably allows you to measure corruption better. But this is where probably the future of anti-corruption studies uh, lies. Corruption, by definition, is something which is very hard to measure. And uh, the fact that we have now new data uh, and, well, stricter empirical standards, I guess, is that you can uh, think of better innovative ways of measuring corruption and misgovernance. And uh, the next question is how you identify potential policy interventions. So in this conference, uh, we had uh, Kilian Nolan from JPAL Europe, who was presenting evidence on RCTs, randomized control trials in governance. Unfortunately, uh, we still are only in the beginning of the process relative to how many RCTs we have on health and education. In governance, by definition, by the nature of that, it's very hard to run uh, a big RCT. You only have kind of small and reasonably limited interventions because you cannot run a RCT saying in this country will run uh, this system of governance and that country will run something else. But this is also an important challenge. It's not only the measuring and understanding corruption what matters, but also understanding what works in anti-corruption policies, which is much harder to study, but should be studied. And part of this problem is, of course, many of these things uh, take time. Institutions change slowly, so you have to be patient. And our academic incentive system means that you cannot wait for too many years until your study is finished and publish a paper. By that time, your tenure review is over. So you addressed the methodological aspect of my last question. Let me follow up by asking you a bit more on the substance or topic aspect of that question. And, and what I mean to get at is, are there areas, topics, or themes in anti-corruption governance where you really feel like there's a a lack of research that would be helpful. So when you, in your capacity as an intermediary mm-hmm. between the academic world and the practical types at the EBRD are looking over the literature, are there particular places where you feel like, boy, we really need more research on this topic, whereas over here we already have three dozen papers and you know you, you can always make progress, but the marginal value added of one more paper on this topic is not nearly as great as one more paper on this other topic that's really understudied? Are there important gaps in the literature, or if not gaps, at least areas where you feel like, putting aside the methodological question, there's really a a topic that people should be focusing on? So I I would say this is a a political uh, corruption issue. I think it's a it's a, it's a very important question, and I'm most excited exactly about the issues uh, you mentioned uh, in the very beginning, how we solve issues related to, to this populist uh, 
upheaval that we observe in some countries, not just in transition countries, but also in many high-income countries. And uh, the politicians who don't want to, to make unsustainable promises have uh, to resist uh, the populist upheaval. It looks like it's not related to corruption directly. But uh, eventually, as we see, as this is this political pushback results in building chronic capitalism, getting rid of those chronic capitalist leaders, getting rid of, of chronic capitalist systems is very hard. And so this grand corruption and state capture, which we observe in many countries where the businesses design the rules that protect their profits and uh, the political system works for business and business captures the political system, this grand corruption is very hard to get rid of. And I think this is where we lack the understanding. Can you ask me this question? As a chief economist of IBRD, I'm not allowed to even speculate on this, on the issue of uh, removing these chronic capitalist regimes. Uh, but uh, I think this is a first order issue. This is the top issue. If, uh, if we want uh, democratic and market-based economies to succeed, and I strongly believe that this is where the future is, I think democracy and markets deliver quality of life and development. But in some countries, unfortunately, uh, populist and crony politicians build systems which are extremely entrenched and stable. And so how to get rid of those systems is a great academic question. Great. Well, again, young scholars in the audience, I hope you listening, are listening to that carefully and, and taking heed. Um, before we close the interview, on the subject of new academic research, I want to ask you a little bit about some of your own research. So something I find rather impressive is that despite having a very demanding day job as chief economist of the EBRD, you're continuing to do your own original scholarly work. I'm not sure how you do this. I feel like I it's hard enough for me to complete my papers without having a second job. So uh, kudos to you. At this conference that we both just attended here in Kiev, you presented some new work that you did with uh, collaborators. Can you tell our audience a little bit about this new line of research, what the research question was and what some of your preliminary findings are? Right. So this paper is about the impact of rolling out 3G networks globally on uh, attitudes to government and on perceptions of corruption. We at the bank actually think a lot about how new technology can be leveraged to promote development and promote institutional change, if you like, improving institutions. And so what we do, we look at the data on the expansion of 3G mobile networks. We also check what happens when you expand 2G and 4G networks, but it turns out that it is the 3G technology that helps getting access to mobile internet, especially in places where you don't have other opportunities for access uh, to information. And we see that globally, uh, rolling out 3G mobile network, uh, networks does increase internet access and does promote a more critical attitude to government. And this is especially true in places where government is actually corrupt. And here we uh, use the the data coming from our colleagues from the IMF who build a great index also presented in this conference, Global Incidence of Corruption Index, using data from reports by Economist Intelligence Unit on actual incidences of corruption. And this is also showing how we cooperate not just with academics but also with other international institutions. Also shows that IMF now, starting two, two decades ago, but also intensifying this work two years ago, is now focusing much more on corruption and uh, doing both analytical and policy work 
on anti-corruption policies. But overall, coming back to my own work, uh, we do find that access to new technology increases accountability of governments, especially of corrupt governments. If uh, the government is corrupt and you have internet, which is not censored, then people are more likely to understand that government is corrupt. If uh, government is corrupt and you don't have internet, people don't know that. If you have government which is corrupt and this government understands the risks of uncensored internet and it does censor internet, we see that people don't know about corruption. So part of this uh, research delivers an optimistic message about new technology. But I guess uh, non-democratic governments are too smart to let it go. And so we also show that online censorship works. And uh, if, uh, if there is a way to fight online censorship, I would, uh, again, recommend uh, fighting online censorship. So part of the research that you've done does have this optimistic, or at least somewhat optimistic, conclusion regarding information communication technologies, in particular mobile internet, to inform citizens about the extent to which their government is corrupt. And for people who are living in countries where the government is corrupt, it causes them to lose confidence uh, or lose support uh, for the government in power. I gather that your research also suggests another dark side or more pessimistic take. So so one, which you just mentioned, is that undemocratic governments will anticipate this possibility and will censor the internet. And if they do so, the advantages of mobile internet with respect to informing people seem to disappear. So I remember 15, 20 years ago, people were predicting with respect to China, once the internet comes in, this will inform the citizens and so forth. And that didn't happen because it turned out China was able to control what the vast majority of their population sees. But if if memory serves, there's another more pessimistic takeaway from the research that you've done about the impact of rolling out 3G that relates to the point you were making before about populism. Um, Can you you spell that a little bit more? Yes, that's exactly true. So a lot of people say that Internet is not just an accountability or a liberation technology, as you mentioned, but also misinformation technology. And what we see is in many countries, populists are much more skillful using modern social media in delivering their message, while mainstream politicians are still slow and uh, they are not using Internet as well as their populist challengers. And what we see when we look at the last 10 years of elections in Europe, at subnational level, we see exactly this. We see that rollout of mobile networks does deliver increase in populist vote. And this uh, works for left-wing populists, but especially for right-wing populists. Probably it is because uh, this uh, new social media help disseminating very simple and short messages. But I think it's a temporary phenomenon where it's just mainstream elites need to uh, wake up and try to use internet technology and new media better. This is not the first time when new information technology was used by anti-establishment parties. The biggest examples, of course, Nazi radio. German Nazis used radio for their propaganda and that really helped them to get to power, actually. There is a paper which just came out in the top journal written by one of my co-authors on this internet paper, Yekaterina Zhuravska. Uh, where they show that radio did promote the spread of Nazi propaganda and really helped Nazis to take over. That doesn't mean that radio is a bad technology. And we also saw that radio is now used by 
good people as well. But uh, that also means that uh, mainstream politicians today in, in advanced economies, but also in our countries, need to think how to better use online media. We're almost at the end, but I did want to ask one more follow-up question about your findings here. So one way to interpret your findings is the, the optimistic finding that internet increases citizens' awareness of corruption in their government and causes them to lose confidence in corrupt government, and the more pessimistic finding that the spread of this technology aids both far-left and far-right populist parties are unrelated in the sense that you learn your corruption is, you learn your government is corrupt, but you also receive more propagandistic messages from populists. There's another interpretation which these are actually both consequences of the same underlying phenomena. That is, people learn more about the problems with their existing government and that causes them to be more susceptible to populist appeals, which, if that's true, would seem to create a dilemma in that we do want citizens to be informed about their government, to hold their government accountable, but when they do, the alternative they choose may not necessarily be the alternative that, let's say, traditional liberal Democrats would would like them to choose. So I guess two questions here. One is, do you think that latter interpretation is a reasonable interpretation of the data that you have, or do you think there's evidence against it? And the second more general question is, if that's true, how do we, we the general international community that likes liberal democracy but wants to fight against corruption, uh, respond to that challenge? And I'm thinking of, of a couple of, of case examples. One is Hungary, where it seems like the at least perceived corruption of, I think it was the Socialist Party that was in power for a while, fueled the campaign of Orban and his party, and then in another part of the world in Brazil, where anger, disgust at widespread corruption in the existing establishment really helped propel the candidacy of right-wing populist Bolsonaro. And this is something that I've struggled with, and I know other people in the community have struggled with. So can you say a little bit, both on the research data end, about whether you think that interpretation is consistent with your findings, and then also address the broader question of how we deal with this potential dilemma? I think this interpretation is plausible, and we will uh, look into this interpretation in more detail as we as we work on this uh, paper. I think overall it is related to the issues we discussed in this podcast. Uh, to what extent the early reformers in transition countries made those mistakes, which could have been avoided, and invited uh, populists then then actually destroy checks and balances and entrench themselves. And uh, now they are not fighting corruption but they're very hard to vote out. Since Hungary is our shareholder, I'm not going to criticize uh, or Mr. Orban's government, but uh, Transparency International does publish a lot of reports on uh, high-level corruption in modern Hungary. So it's not clear to what extent uh, watchdogs like Transparency International believe that current uh, Hungarian government is less or more corrupt than the previous government. However, um, uh, what I would just say is, indeed, the challenge is not accountability of incumbent liberal centrist uh, governments, but the challenge is whether the populists who win the elections get held accountable themselves for their policies, whether they deliver on their promises. And uh, if uh, they don't, they vote, get voted out of office. And I think this is the major challenge because some of modern populists have those authoritarian tendencies where they shut down media freedom, uh, kick out political competitors, capture courts, and make it impossible to hold them accountable for this. And some of them actually introduce internet censorship as well. 
But one other thing which I wanted to mention re regarding this paper, we also show that when press freedom is constrained and internet is not censored, internet really works as a liberation technology. But as I said, unfortunately, many, uh, many authoritarian leaders believe that they should censor both traditional freedom and internet, and that does work. Well, we're unfortunately out of time, but this has been an extremely interesting and useful conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Our guest today on Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast, has been Sergei Guriev, the Chief Economist of the European Bank for, for Reconstruction and Development. Sergei, again, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. Thank you very much, Matthew. I appreciate this.